So you guys heard that man sing just now. I want to show you what that man looks like. Like what? So I'm going to tell you guys, so I've been to three different states today. Took a flight early morning, went to one state, had two meetings, went to another airport, went to another state. And now I'm back home. Did all that before five o'clock today. Um, and I want to talk about flying uh, for a bit because it's important. But as I was, you know, in the airplane, I, I, I had a really not so good day on the plane. I could tell you that. I didn't have a good day because the flight out of the East Coast <clears throat> didn't have room for bags. So you had to check them in. And my, my, little carry-on had computers in there and everything. And it's just like, no way I'm going to put that in the belly of the beast, especially if it's like, oh, well, red tag it. So once you exit the plane, it'll be waiting for you. You know why? Because those are thrown around. They drop them. It's one guy at the bottom throwing the suitcase up or the handbag for someone else to take it. So there I am. And I have to empty all my shit at my chair, computers, the book, right? I didn't want that disappearing. So I'm livid because I was reading this book until I fell asleep for a nap, of course, last night. And it stayed on the plane. But I remember the stewardess's name, obviously where I sat. FAA knows that too. Really livid. But as I was livid and I was really, really, really upset, right? Livid. Because I get to my other plane, I sit down, I'm like, let me get that book. Really want to read that book book is gone. And I was like, damn. I said to myself, and I was wearing my headphones and I was still online. Oh, great. You don't know what you got till it's gone. That book was gone. And I was like, damn, really meant something for me. Now that's gone. And I'm so upset. I'm going to tirelessly look for it because it was actually given to me by someone. And then as I said that, this comes on my phone. And I'm like, who is this guy? He looks nothing like what he sounds like, right? You do not expect him to look like that. And I'm like, damn, that's so hot. You know, when you come out and you're singing and you don't even look like what you sound. It's incredible, right? So I'm listening to this song and (laughs) so hear me out. I'm exhausted, all right? I didn't get to my hotel last night. 
in Kentucky until about, I don't know, 1230 at night. And I was on the phone anyway. Um, and I had a really good conversation. Uh, well, it was very short lived, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I, you know, on my flight, I had to be at the airport at like, I think it was like three because it was four fifty five. Um, it was like the super red eye four fifty five was boarding. So we were leaving at five something. Um, and I hate going to Newark. I really do. I, I shouldn't use the word hate. That's such a spiteful word. But anyway, <laughs> and I had to go to a meeting. So, so anyway, when I said that, I was like, darn it. You know, you don't even know what you have until it's gone. And it's like that book was gold. I fell asleep. My face, I, you know, full disclosure, not embarrassed at all, because I'm sure every single one of you had had this. I was so exhausted with that nap where I was like reading. So picture this Kentucky. I'm like, oh, I've got another hour and a half until I have to go, you know, to, to the airport again. I'm reading, reading. I'm loving this book. It was like an old book. Um, and uh, like I dribbled on the page. Okay. That's how tired I was. And that was, and, and I kid you not, I was like, well, that's a good bookmark to know. Cause that's all I look for when I got on the plane. <laughs> oh God, so bad. But anyway, just to say your phones are always listening. Cause this guy came up, I was listening to music and I thought it's like a TV show, you know, where music starts playing in the background. You're like, where's that coming from? Because I know I didn't turn it on. And then I hear this. And I'm like, where's that music coming from? I, could, I didn't know. Can't tell you, baby. And I was like, you know, it was like in the background, really low like this, right? And I'm frantically looking for this book. And this is playing because as I bent over on my chair, taking out from my little carry-on things, I was like, damn, you, you don't know what you got till it's freaking gone. I just said that and suddenly this comes on playing in the background and I'm like, all right, I'm imagining this. Maybe I'm like really tired. I totally forgot that I was wearing earbuds, right? Until I sit down and I look at my phone and this guy's on my phone and I wanted to share that with you. This guy was on my phone. <laughs> so, uh, that guy was, <laughs> you know, it was, it was super, it was super uncalled for. It was funny. Um, it was weird because I don't know if any of you have ever been in the position where you're just like, um, you know, where's that music coming from? Right. Like in musicals, you know, where they hear music and you're like, oh, my God, here comes the cheese. Right. This was the perfect song for me looking for the book, but whatever. Uh, so anyway, so that happened. I had really good meetings, really good progress today. Um after my show, I'm going to still keep working. This weekend is dedicated completely to finishing up my case. Um, you know, it's been, it's been really hard and there's a lot of people, but I got really good guidance this morning too. And, you know, I, I revisited a few things in history and I thought I would share some things with you, uh, but also kind of bring it together because today, uh, as we were having conversations, Someone that does, is a person of few words and listens a lot, right? Kind of just said, 
how, how can you just pull this information, you know? And I said, well, it's, it's not how it's, you know, we remember things the way we're supposed to be remembering them. We connect them with memories. And so somebody else in the room, very highly educated, you know, kind of reminds me of Patrick, but it's a version of Patrick Byrne with a hanger in his suit. You know, he looks like a stiff and I'm pretty sure he's listening now and heard me (laughs) say that, but, um, he's a stiff. So we got into the conversation of, um, Jungian theory because he was trying to understand some happenings. Like it was, it was more of a casual type conversation about, um, happenings in respect to our nation and, 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 and public discourse. And he said, you know, this reminds me of, you know, the death of the soul. (laughs) And I guess, you know, for other people, (laughs) because most people there were over the age of 65, right? They all kind of like, just like went into their peanuts. uh, Even though it was like breakfast time, uh, you know, servers were coming in and he said it with such passion. And, you know, I didn't mean to, (laughs) I didn't mean to, I think this is why they, you know, you love someone for their good and their bad. This is where my bad came out. This is where, you know, I'm really lucky the coffee didn't come out of my nostrils. You know, if I had a full bladder, would have peed myself because the way he said it made me laugh out loud, like the ugly laugh, the snort, the coffee going everywhere. But he was right. See, I've described to all of you what I went through personally in 2019. And I want you guys to understand it this way. Your psyche, your soul, right? Um, your is your ego. It's your ego. Ego in Greek means me, the me, right? And usually, this your soul or your heart. You know, people refer it to any way. The, the ego is the you, right? Yeah, I got a big ego. You have a little ego. You have this kind of energy. You guys get it. Fill in the blank energy. It's you. And the way it collapses is when someone you love betrays you. See, because one of the people that is in that room was still undergoing the shock of the betrayal because they're so firm on loyalty. And I think people misinterpret loyalty as something uh, that is like, kiss the wing, I'm in charge. And it's like, no, that's not it. It's about being able to maintain your north, your moral compass, and never waver from it. (laughs) And then, you know, when I said, oh, well, you know, if people actually stood for the things they said they stood for, then they wouldn't be falling for everything they're falling for right now. And it goes down to this. In order for your ego, your heart, to die and disappear and crumble and crack and break, 
Betrayal happens. And that happens when someone who you love so much betrays you, right? That's, that's what it is. So, you know, we know that this reality construct, this world that we delve in, the one we wake up to every single day is complicated. It's created and destroyed with means and modes that are sometimes really hard for you to comprehend and, and, and grasp and understand and, and, and taste it. Because in essence, you only see a very little bit of what is actually going on in reality. And in fact, you only see on a certain broad of spectrum of light. You can only hear at a certain bandwidth. So why would you think that you are not able to see everything that is happening? Your, the way you see the world allows you to capture the information that the world is giving back to you. So in your mind, and, and you know, one person was like, I don't like what you're telling me, but you're right. And I was like, well, you know, there's not a lot of people in this world that'll sit there and tell me stuff I don't like. But you know what the difference is? The difference between being mean and being real is that it's not with malintent. See, the understanding that you have of the world and the assumption about everything in your life is how you make sense of things. You simplify it to the, to the level that you feel comfortable for. So like even people that you interact with or, or like, or, or hate or anything, um, you break it down to a point that it makes sense to you. Like, you know, there's how many of you have ever been in a relationship, um, friendship or, or marriage where they have annoying qualities about them. And, and only when you're pissed off are the qualities about them annoying, right? At all other times you've compartmentalized them, right? You compartmentalize them saying, well, you know, he snores, he wears a CPAP to bed. But, you know, when he walks and he looks goofy in front of me, I'm okay with that. The way she bends over is so ungraceful, but you know what? When she falls, she makes me laugh. And hey, if she falls in a different way, it's kind of hot. You know what I mean? So, you know, there's a whole mastermind plan in your mind, in your soul, in your heart, where you segregate your emotions. That's why we say they wear rose colored glasses, right? Or it's, it's always the perspective you have. You can see a painting dead on and see a face and then go to the left and you see, you know, a wolf and you go to the right and you see a sheep and you're like, I'm confused. It's the same pin painting, but a different perspective. So you simplify everything you see. So it makes sense to you. This is why your heart, your psyche, your ego is destroyed. 
Remember, I, I, I had mentioned how my whole life was destroyed. There's, there's voluntary destruction and involuntary destruction. Voluntary destruction of your, uh, your, your, your external identity, the ego that you present is done when you've learned something. Like someone, uh, you know, hijacked the car, right? Stole it, was put in jail for a month, saw the people that were around. He's like, yeah, I don't want to be anybody's bitch. This isn't happening again. I'm going to go out. I'm going to get a trade. I'm going to start working because, yeah, this is something I don't want. They destroy their ego of pimping around with big fat chains and a big wad of cash, right? And, you know, acting like they own, you know, three blocks of their territory because they don't want to be in that. So that's your voluntary destruction where you like break the reality you've created in your mind about yourself or your goals because it is important, right? To fix it and then go back to the self. So, so, so in yourself, let's take it this way. You were born, your soul, your heart, your feelings were always the same. It was a baseline. Let's just be like, you know, it's kind of like going to Dairy Queen and you're getting a blizzard. It's the base ice cream. You just add the fixings afterwards, right? You just exaggerate them this way. I mean, if you put a lot of stuff in there, it doesn't taste good, does it? So you try to, you know, what if you are a Dairy Queen and your soul's that Dairy Queen cup with that, with that white ice cream in it, right? And then you put Butterfinger and then you're adding cookies and cream and you're adding all, and then you add so much that you're like, damn, this tastes like, so what do you do? You get rid of it and you start with the base again, right? Right? That's how we should be dealing with our expectations as people and how we go forward. And that is when you voluntarily destroy your psyche, your ego. And, and like Jung said, it's voluntary destruction of the ego in order to rebuild it better. You just crumble it. Think of it like an iceberg. You take the top that's showing, you crumble it, and then you rebuild it back. But you know where the, where the good part is? Right at the base. You don't need any peaks and stuff right at the base, nice, well-rounded. But I'll tell you what the basis of any build is, is trust. You trust your loved ones and your family members, right? So for me, when I was betrayed, it was from someone I supposedly trusted, someone I spent the majority of my life with. And what happens when that, when, when that strikes you, right? Cause you could be betrayed by people you meet along the way, right? And it can hurt you, right? But it doesn't hurt you as much as if it is someone from your family. Because the memories you have totally shakes every core of your faith. It, it totally derails your future, the plans you had, the memories you thought you had that were great. And that, and then you have no trust, just not in people, but yourself too. And so Jung had said that when you come to that, your ego collapses. That's your death of an ego. And then you're just back to your basic vanilla self. 
But the one thing that remains is that base. And it's all about you, who you are as a core. So when there's death of an ego, either voluntary, involuntary, depending on the degree, it happens. And right now, I know a lot of people have their ideas of philosophy. I don't like this person. You know, a lot of shitty people said a lot of great things. Even Adolf Hitler had some really good statements. Because uh, every single evil and good person that has walked this construct has had an epiphany at some point to think. You are consumed by what you put out. This is how recompense works. If you believe you're important and you're entitled to shit, right? You hear that all the time when we have minors constantly going into the system, the prison system, right? They feel entitled. People owe them things. Minorities, they use that excuse because they have this mentality of people owe me things. This is why they drive up to social security and freaking escalate to collect their benefits. Simplifying your reality helps you, but we must understand what our foundations are. Once you understand what your foundations are, everything's makes, everything makes sense. And this is why a lot of people resort to drugs and drinking and hypersexuality and porn addictions and all this stuff because they're not happy with who they are at the base. They don't feel adequate enough to the expectations that they set. And now you as a citizen, right? Your ego has been destroyed as a citizen. <laughs> you trusted your government. You were paying your taxes. Some of you will say, I never trusted them. You kind of did because you still went along with it. So all you have to do right now is collapse within yourself and say, all right, you got me. Guess what? You're not getting me again. And you stand tall on that. People are finding it really hard to struggle. You know, I, I've said this before. My whole life was destroyed. My reality was shattered. I had the most insane involuntary betrayal event in my life. But I was solid. Because if I wasn't, I would have taken my life that, that day where I actually contemplated it. Because I didn't know, how, what do I do in this situation? How do you fix something that you didn't even know was broken and suddenly you look and it's shattered into a million pieces and you're like, damn, how did I not see this? And then for the rest of your life, it's not the rest of my life, but it's been three years for me. You look back and you're like, what the, f what, how? And you just keep playing it in your mind again and again, which haunts you. And this is where, you know, hate to say this. No, I don't hate to say, see, I don't like the word hate. I have to stop using it. This is where people go back to childhood trauma and then they actually have a point. That's where you get your small energy right? and, you know, um, Oh, was it today? Someone said something and they said, oh, you know, this presenter or something like that has, was it CNN that said it? I don't know. Maybe it's on a clip. I don't know where I heard it. Napoleon energy, Napoleon energy. Napoleon wasn't short, but he was, he felt that he had shortcomings. And now all of us feel like we have shortcomings, right? 
we have to, we have to understand that it happened. It happened. All of this happened, right? We all didn't see it, right? I mean, you saw inches of it, but you couldn't fathom that someone that you consider family, which is your government, right? Because there you are, they're your family because you've entrusted them to represent you. So in a sense, they're like your family and, and, and they betray you. They literally did betray you because everything that you've been living is a lie and it hurts. It hurts a lot. And we feel insignificant, insufficient. And we're always, this is why people are so susceptible to bullshit too, right? And these red string things. Because we're hurt. We've been betrayed. We've been completely betrayed. And, and we're struggling right now to see that, okay, the way I feel right now, frustrated, the way I'm being swayed and is because I'm frustrated. Why am I frustrated? Because I was betrayed. I was betrayed, not just by those people, but I let myself be betrayed. Therefore, I need to deconstruct my ego and take it back down and try to see how I can build it up the right way. Yesterday, when I was a keynote at this place at the farm, and it looked so nice. It wasn't the farm, though. Been there. Um, <laughs> they portrayed an energy of wanting to fix things. And one thing I noticed in the older population, I um, met a woman. She wasn't part of any groups or any telegram groups or anything like that. But she said, you know, I saw this coming when I was younger. I just didn't believe what I was seeing. So I think I kind of chose not to see it. And now I've got great grandkids and I helped enslave them because I could have said something. I mean, even though I was a woman and women didn't, it's not really that true, but I could have said something and prevented it. And, uh, you know, it, it got to me because I'm like, this is what everyone is struggling with. I mean, there's a lot of people that are consumed by demons, uh-huh. but there's a lot of people right now that are purposely ignoring the truth, ignoring facts, ignoring the responsibility that they they bear too, because they can't handle it. They cannot handle it. I mean, <laughs> look at them in Europe right now. Their farmers are going to, be charged with crimes if they don't burn the shit out of their farms. Right? How that liberalism go? How the I identify movements go? How did the I trust my government blindly go? Didn't go very well. You know, when when I, when I, um, when I was pissed after that guy came on and the song came on, so it kind of calmed me down, right? I decided to turn the little TV on in the back of the chair and I used their really cheap headphones because I was running out of battery for mine anyway. And I wanted to watch another umbrella Academy episode. So (laughs) I was like, there was a preacher on and he was like, and America stands with Israel and the Bible says, and I'm like, okay, I turned it off and I said, damn it, that's the problem. We take things sometimes too literally. We take things sometimes 
to not literally can we find a good balance? So I thought that today we'd start before we get into the news and stuff and to give you some, let's start on biblically accurate things. And I'm not going to play the whole video, right? But biblically accurate things, because like I've said, the churches control you. If the church was on your side, they wouldn't be telling you to do things the government wants you to do. And they wouldn't be taking money from the government to implement things they want you to do. I've said this before. State and church separation. Get out of here. So let's get into that. I found a great video because I was like, you know, maybe someone's actually done some accurate biblical things. Accurate, meaning word for word, and let's talk about it. Let's see what they're saying because they, it's like, you know, are you going to take it in accuracy that you sold your daughter for three cows? Maybe they did stuff like that because people used to be arranged. Does the, is that part of scripture that you need to enact? No, it's not, because this is transcription of history and shit that actually happened, most of all, with a few bits of information that are just hard to handle. I mean, deception, so big. So let's go with this. A more biblically accurate depiction as a mechanism. In any case, you might say that the function of the ophanim Whilst intriguing and novel, it's not essential to believers, which is why concrete information about them is so scarce. Whether it be from the characters of the Bible themselves, or scholars who studied them, the wheels are only vital in their accordance to God. They serve to remind believers that their mystique and uncanny form is just one of the many creations that God has made that man cannot understand, and in some cases, it might serve to humble believers into realizing that they do not have all the answers. It also brings God's engineerial ingenuity into the limelight, for whilst many may take for granted the way in which the world was created, elements like the Ophanim remind them of how much a mechanical mastermind a supreme being like God must be, especially given that we to this day would not be able to create something so unusual. Others might see the Ophanim as a representation of God himself, in that because they are covered with eyes, the eyes become symbolic of God being all-seeing. If the Ophanim have a multitude of eyes, and spin omnidirectionally, then it would be believed that they can see everything from every angle. This would imply then that God could very well do the same, as we know he can, from very specific mentions in the Bible, that God is everywhere, and God knows everything. everything. Thrones. Before we get into the thrones, now let's take a let's take a stop one second. So you're you're a person and you're a Christian, you're you know, spiritual, whatever, and then this angel comes down and it's a bunch of spinning atoms with eyeballs on it looking at you, and it's just floating around. This thing that floats around with eyes, maybe they're cameras everywhere, and it's looking at you everywhere. 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 And it's supposedly an angel. Everywhere. And then it goes back to, let's look at some ancient Greek drama, right? I'm just going to tie this in so you can see how things overlap. If you actually take real literal things, not things that sell you, you know, audiences at your church or on your telethons, but real things, 
right? You're not going to, you're going to tell people that angels are feminine looking men with wings, right? Or that they're really studly with swords, right? But then, you know, the same angel you're referring to literally in that book where they didn't edit tells you it's a thing that has a lot of eyes that sees and hears everything. <laughs> Kind of sounds like the NSA, but I'm just saying. So um, I, <laughs> I'm just saying, right, if you were to see, you know, this in front of you, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's so angelic. I just want you to be able to have discernment. And when you read the Bible and you do the literal, do it literal. Don't go back to what you were taught. Read the words. Better yet, like I said, you shouldn't know the words. You should be the words. As previously mentioned, mm. the, the thrones throne. are a class of angels that are similar to the Ophanim and sometimes are outrightly assumed as being the same as the Ophanim. Very little is actually known about this type of angel and its appearance in the Bible is scarce. One of its more notable appearances is in Colossians where we are told the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. What the thrones actually look like is up for some speculation with some believing them to look similar or identical to the Ophanim, or for them to appear as a combined image of the throne of God, hence their name. In some interpretations, it is believed that the thrones are also wheels within wheels, and that these wheels are also spinning and covered with eyes. In another interpretation that coincides with the idea that the Ophanim are the wheels of God's chariot, some believe that the thrones take on the form of the chariot itself. Another interesting idea proposes that the thrones show up much later in Revelations 11 as elders. John of Revelations tells us that these elders appear to be gathered around the throne of God and all are praising him. Whilst the elders are not described, it is their proximity to God that is most interesting to us. It could be the case that these are not just older men, but instead the very thrones that are described in Colossians. Of course, this can also be dismissed, given that the only reason this is speculated is because the elder men appear to have actual thrones of their own, those that are gathered around the one throne of God. Others believe that if these are the thrones, they have likely taken the form of old men, so as to make it easier for John to digest what he is seeing. For John had by this point seen so many ghastly and bizarre things that it might have pushed him over the edge to see the thrones in their truest appearance. In his work, De Coelesti Hierarchia, Greek author and Christian theologian, Pseudo-Dionysius the Aeropagite, tells us that the thrones were the third highest of the nine classes of angels, ranking just below the seraphim and cherubim. In many classifications, these are considered to be the first sphere of angels, and these are the angels that serve God directly, and thus are closer to him than any others. It should be noted that many angels in the Old Testament do not even get a description, 
and instead are believed to have appeared simply as men. They had no halos, no wings, and no tangible physical aspect that separated them from the common man, if not for a certain demeanor. For example, the men who appeared to Abram to bear prophecy and also have their feet washed by him are not visibly angels, but Abram can tell there is something special about them. The same could be said for the angel who wrestles all night with Jacob, and whilst this character was later depicted as an angel in classical art, the Bible simply describes him as a man. These angels, you might say, were what 12th century Jewish scholar Maimonides described as the malach, the ancient Hebrew word for messenger, and whilst they had a certain distinction about them, they were not as outlandish in appearance as the cherubim, seraphim, or ophanim. You might say that they adopted a guise that was more suited to their task, choosing to appear in a more humanoid form to deliver their message, instead of scaring the living daylights out of the recipients. The Malak, or the Malakim, plural, were just one type of angel that appeared in Maimonides' classification of angels, a sort of angelic hierarchy, if you will. But the question still remains that if these Malak, these messengers, took the form of men, instead of appearing in their natural state, what horrors were they sparing us from seeing? On the subject of angels appearing before men, there's a concept from several classifications that incorporate the second sphere of angels, these being the angels that govern over earth, and thus are not as close to God as the aforementioned angels. Of this second sphere, the angels adopt a more familiar look, Dominions. The classification of these seconds. Before we get to that, so let's talk about your reality shattering with truth. I hope most of you have watched a lecture from Dr. Bonnie Bassler at TEDx where she introduces her quorum sensing. It's highly important that you do. But again, A lot of people, you know, when they say they're bad at math or bad at chemistry or bad at physics, it's not because they're not capable of understanding things or learning it. Let's say learning it, but they're not capable of fathoming it. How many of you right now can sit there and clearly fathom the concept that the table that you're sitting at the chair you're sitting on the floor your feet are on you're all one you've just made the distinction of collecting a bunch of atoms to kind of hover together and in in your eyes and everybody else's eyes interpret them as one whole it's really hard to fathom that it is very hard to fathom the truth we're talking science open up any book i don't care it's not political Right. And it's not, you have to have, you can have an IQ of a shoe size to, you know, an IQ of 1 million. It is very difficult to fathom that because then you may disappear. (laughs) If you really fathom it, you will disappear. If you really embrace it, it's what they call nirvana, where you just, (gasps) you bust into light and you're gone. So understanding actual reality factual reality on that sense on a molecular sense is very difficult 
And this is why humankind was endowed with the idea of artificial interpretations of the truth, creating non-metabolizing matter that can simplify situations so that you may understand them. So, you know, if you actually fathomed the idea that you are just a bunch of atoms, you can literally change the way you look instantly. I want longer hair. And then you hear and your hair grows because you've just manipulated those atoms to grow hair. I don't like my adipose cells so big. So I'm going to shrink them. Let's go. And this malfunction we have in disease in our body is actually miscommunication within the cells that you govern because of foreign intrusion. (laughs) We can get into that later. So actually being able to fathom your reality construct or being able to fathom what is happening is completely out of your reach. And the more pedestrian you are, the easier it is for evil to pop in. (laughs) And so we create our own gods. And I'm not saying about the creator. I'm saying gods you serve. I had this conversation with Gavin and I was like, look, man, we're going to sit here all the time and we're going to have arguments about Gravitrons. They don't exist. End of story. Bottom line is math can't exist without this unit. Life can't exist without this unit and nothing makes sense without this unit. And it is the most expensive unit in the universe. And that's time. See, it doesn't make sense that a car moves If you don't have time to reference it, if you can't say, well, the car was there and in a minute it went there, therefore it moved. If you don't have the unit of time, it makes no sense. You were a baby and now you're an adult to make sense of that. There's time. Time is the most expensive thing you own every second that has gone by. So those of you listening, you've just given me your time. Thank you. It is appreciated. And I, and I try to make use of it for you. That it's well spent. But see, your time is money. Right? That's your currency. So you have to think, what dominates your time? Where do you find your time is important to be invested in? And that is the God you serve. What? What do you mean? Well, you go to Walmart, you clock in your card. You're serving Walmart right now because you've just clocked that card. You have given your time to receive currency. So when you clock your time in, your thoughts, your time on the internet, your time in the bathroom, in the kitchen, on the elevator, in the car, that time is gone. Once it's spent, it's gone. There's no more getting it. You can't return and get it. So when you exchange your time, make sure that your principles are right. 
Because when you have this time and you invest it in the wrong things, like, you know, I mean, things that don't serve you. It's fun to watch funny cat videos. You can watch them all day. Then tomorrow you can write. So yesterday was useless. I've said that before. When I sleep too much, I feel like I zero productivity. I wasted my time. Time. So important. And I think going forward, listening to the dominions. So the way this guy is describing it is people that are right next to God, people that are surrounding him, right? The creator and then levels. So the second level are called the dominions, right? And the Malaks that you heard, Malakim, you know, but let's talk about the dominions for a second because they're interesting. Very interesting. Dominions. The classification of these second sphere angels do not appear in the Bible as such. However, several of the angels who do appear in the Bible have been classified into these various groups. The dominions, for example, can be angels who help keep the world in order. They act on behalf of God, often carrying out his tasks and or directly implementing his divine plan. According to many classifications, these angels also bring about God's judgment against sinful situations within the world. And whilst humanity might not understand or agree with the work that takes place, the dominions are believed to enforce the biblical God's perspective. Of course, because the dominions operate on earth, they are believed to take the form of humans, much like the Malachim, perhaps in an effort to avoid scaring the humans they interacted with. An example of dominions at work could be when the angels are sent down to Sodom and Gomorrah to inspect the land of what the biblical God perceived as sin. These dominions took the form of men, so as to not arouse suspicion. Although ironically, this is exactly what they ended up doing. The dominions are also believed to deliver the wisdom of God to humans, most notably to those in leading positions, such as world leaders. In essence, it is believed those that pray or seek the aid of God will be answered by the dominions, who may appear in physical form to guide one into taking the best course of action. To some, these angels are led by the archangel Zadkiel, an angel who some believe prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. Dominions in this essence are believed to take on the same role, intervening, often at the last minute, to spare someone from making a terrible decision. Naturally, to those of us with a more sceptic nature, it would be natural to argue that angelic beings do not descend from the heavens to stop us from making mistakes. However, some rationalize that these dominions act from the shadows and or are imperceptible to the human eye. In this, they can alter our fate without us really knowing it, or may put obstacles in our path so as to prevent us from making the wrong choice. Virtues One of the more baffling entity of angels that appear in the second sphere of angels are the virtues. Unlike the dominions, the virtues aren't necessarily believed to possess a form at all, but instead appear as a flash of light, which would explain their secondary moniker as the Shining Ones. Their role within the universe is much less understood though it is believed that they have some influence over the elements and over nature. 
To others, the virtues can be interpreted as a sort of divine energy, one that can both encourage and strengthen one's belief in God. In some classifications, the virtues are believed to perform miracles to the deserving, where they reward the noble, the righteous, and those who are doing their best to get back into the algorithm. Hi. Powers or Authorities The powers or authorities are angels that you might imagine ensure order within the earthly and the celestial realms. You wouldn't be wrong for considering these angels as warrior angels, those who do battle against evil spirits and demons. Whilst not specified in Revelation, where the ultimate battle between good and evil took place, it is not a stretch to assume that the angels who battled against Lucifer in his rebellion were likely the powers and authorities, those who would have been donned in full shining armor and wielding fantastic weapons. However, in other beliefs, it is these very angels who were swayed by Lucifer, given that he was believed to be the chief of powers. This may have led to the strength of Lucifer's army, and why the rebellion was not so easily thwarted by God in the first place. Despite maintaining a human appearance... So let's talk about that for a second. So uh, let's get a little bit spiritual here. So let's use that. Lucifer taught them that he was the all and powerful. So let's think of Lucifer as a currency, right? Let's think of him as money. How many serve that? Almost everybody does. And everything has a price. Every single thing. Your nation has a price. Your values have a price. Everything has a price. This is how people that were meant to protect mankind, humans themselves, corrupted themselves. I want you to take it into that perspective because I know I have a lot of listeners that are of various faiths. And for those in India, I know you guys are going to hear it in the morning, um, probably like right now in the morning, right? <laughs> Where you're driving, I get these letters coming in from India and, you know, they get upset. <laughs> They're like, you know, we want to get upset with you when you get, when you talk about your customer service, but I get it. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable that someone that lives outside of this country has access to my private identifying information, yet I can't enforce American laws on them if they misuse it. But, you know, the, the people that say their name is Bob, but it's really Raj, you know, those, they write to me. I have people that work in U.S. company customer service and they're like, you know, uh, one, one place that has thousands of employees and I won't share it because I don't want to put them in that position. <laughs> Sent me a picture <laughs> where they're like, guys, don't use the name Bob because Tori's going to call anybody that listens to Tori will call us. Okay, Raj, because that's how I respond when they tell me these things. But they tell me this all the time that even though they're not, you know, Christian, uh, and the concept of the Christ, they understand. Many of them are Hindus and Muslim, and they listen. And they're trying to discern based on theirs. So we can take this down to the jinns and to the angels that they have in the Muslim religion. And the Sanskrit, I mean, they even said that the angels had eyes and they were spinning wheels. And then if you look at the shape of an atom, you will see kind of the same things. But instead of eyes, you see electrons, you know, whatever. It's almost like that. So let's talk about that for a second. How that actually works. How the Lucifer concept works. 
Evil's not going to tell you I'm bad. And they're not going to tell you they're good. They're going to tell you how important their currency is. Forget time, man. It's money. Forget serving, man. It's money. Everybody has a price. Every single person has a price. But the question is, what are you willing to sell? And that's what's important. What are you willing to sell is what's important. What you serve out comes back. That's the concept of recompense. If you put out selfishness, if you do things with, I'll get this in return, I'll get a medal, I'll get a cookie, I'll get a title, I'll get a tiara, I'll get, I don't know, a picture with, you know, whoever, right? (laughs) Well, you just sold yourself and you just sold your goods. That's exactly what Lucifer represents. The concept of what you sell. And see, that all matters on your moral floor. Many people say they will fight to the death for their nation and for their children. But they'll do it if it's convenient for them because, you know, they still have to put gas in the car and that's reality, right? Well, the reality we subscribe to. They still have to put gas in the car. They still have to pay the mortgage. So they'll fight as long as they can maintain the gas in the car and kiss the ring of whoever and clock the card of whoever in order to maintain their comfort. See, it's not comfortable fighting for for the things that you believe in. (laughs) If it was, then we wouldn't have wars. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to have uncomfortable conversations and you have to be able to humble yourself. And it's really hard for smart people. Yeah, it's self-preservation, right? But it's really hard for smart people to understand that. Or like I say, the most dangerous people are the ones that are half-baked, half-educated. They know just enough to say something on it, but not enough to go into depth. And therefore, they speak to it as if they have full knowledge of the whole thing. I could tell you now. Right now, if we can pop up a screen with every single media outlet right now, all of them have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. They all opine, read scripts from others that are given to them. From all the courts right now and any suit in there, less than 1% know exactly what they're talking about. They don't know it. They kind of know it. There are very few that with full conviction understand the gravity of the situation. Now, this is the last day of June. Last day of June. It's June. Damn, I should have had this lawsuit filed in freaking May. I'm so pissed. But it's okay. The devil made sure to run the clock. Lucifer's very attractive, you know. A lot of people will run to that. But it's okay. 
We maintain course, right? That's how you do it. When you learn to serve others selflessly, you'll see that a lot comes back to you like nobody's business. And it just comes out of nowhere like a energy out of the sky. So let's finish this up quickly before we get into this. So you understand the one thing from a conversation I had on text when I had kind of woken up from that nap going to the airport with someone from far, far away (laughs) who listens to my show two days delayed because their radio station in their country streams it on a two day delay. Let's finish this up quick. The sight of such an angel is believed to be quite an intimidating one. These were mean-faced soldiers that probably stood a whole head height taller than the tallest man, with wings that were sharp to the touch and with weapons too heavy for any mortal to wield. To some, these angels could be viewed as God's task force against evil entities, those that don't necessarily have to be of the demonic persuasion. The angel of death that is sent to destroy Jerusalem may very well have likely been of the powers or the authorities, which goes to show their immense and dastardly strength, given that God only sends one of them. Yet again though, the original authors do not give a vivid description of these angels, making their actual image all the more elusive. Principalities Beyond the second sphere of angels, we have the third sphere, these being angels that are believed to exist on the earth and thus are the most likely set of angels that a human might run into. Luckily for us, these angels, much like the Dominions and the Malachim, adopt the form of humans and so out of all the angels, it's probably these ones that you'd have the most in common with. Unlike the other angels, the principalities also live on the earth And by this, you might say that these angels are more in touch with what is happening in the world, and thus, more relatable. To some, these principalities, or princes, directly inspire world leaders, nations, and in some cases, churches, in an effort to keep things running smoothly. Given their status as ruling various areas of the earth, or at least imparting power to various people, These angels are believed to wear crowns and carry with them a staff or scepter. To some believers, it is the principalities who bless mankind with art, science, maths, or some wholesome intention that will benefit the world in some way. In other cases, the principalities are believed to give strength to those who will go on to do something miraculous. Ideally, as mentioned, If you were going to run into any one of these angels, the principalities might be your safest bet. Or maybe not, if you ask St. Paul. St. Paul believed that it was actually the principalities who joined Lucifer in his rebellion, as well as the powers, where he tells us in his letter to the Church of Ephesus, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here St. Paul speaks of man's struggle not being with each other, but instead with a more spiritual threat, the principalities and the powers. This leans into the idea that the principalities, along with the powers, now worked against mankind 
in an effort to corrupt them. With the idea that these angels join Lucifer, you may very well label them as fallen angels, those who now do the opposite of what the principalities were originally created for. Indeed, where they once doled out wisdom, inspiration, and even strength, St. Paul gives us the idea that they would now sooner give out lies, demotivate man, and even sap away his strength. Nephilim The Nephilim predominantly appear in the Book of Enoch, where they are described as performing exceptionally evil deeds. Whilst not actually angelic beings themselves, the Nephilim were produced by the angels and the mortal women in the times before the flood. Now, if you thought some of the angels were scary to behold, then you'll likely find that their offspring are simply the stuff of nightmares. The Nephilim, these sons of the fallen angels, could technically be considered as part fallen angel, part human, and part giant. Indeed, they were large, hulking beasts that were more animal than man, and when they weren't tearing apart the landscape and devouring the fields for food, they were spilling blood like it was going out of style. We see that when man can no longer sustain the Nephilim's diet, they begin to hunt man, devouring them without hesitation. And when they run out of men to hunt, they turn cannibal, consuming their own kind to satiate their ungodly appetite. There's an idea that these Nephilim obtain their tremendous size and strength through the merging of angelic DNA and human biology, something that even the biblical God shudders at the sight of. In fact, he is so disgusted by the offspring of the angels that he is seen to send down his archangels to destroy them. In other ideas, some believe that this purge of the Nephilim wasn't enough for God, and that he deemed the Nephilim to be so hideous that their existence is what warranted the flood. What you might take away from this is that these sons of the angels must have been truly ghastly monsters, for if even Enoch's god is disgusted by them, then surely man would be outright repulsed. The Fallen Angels The Fallen Angels certainly have a lot to answer for, given that in the case of the powers and the principalities, they still conspire against mankind. Meanwhile, in the Book of Enoch, where they are known as the Watchers, it is they who fornicate with the mortal women and bring to life the dreaded abominations that are the Nephilim. But would you believe it, there's another trick that the fallen angels are believed to do in some Christian mythos, and that is to transform themselves into demons. Whilst this belief was not shared by the original authors and translators of the Hebrew Bible, it has since become a popular trope, especially when used in conjunction with the fall of Lucifer, where the angels who side with him appear to go through something of a demonic transition. As you might have guessed, these are probably the worst kind of angels you could come into contact with, for like Lucifer, they hate mankind, and will do whatever needs to be done to lure them away from their god. As far as what these now evil angels look like, the Bible doesn't really give us much to go on. Instead, we have to look to more mythological sources, or, or even rely on literature. John Milton's Paradise and we'll get into that in another time, but I want you to think of this concept. They only look like giants 
because you are on your knees. Now, it may be terrifying to think, but once you grasp the concept that you command the cells that you have claimed to be your domain, would you not be able to theoretically change the way you look, change the way you are perceived? And so the one thing that's missing from this video, and I'll pull that from the septa, right? One day. And this is just food for thought. Is um, You do not need eyes to have faith. You need not see proof to know of the creator's existence, right? But now I am clearly giving you things that have already been solved and presented. That matter is not created or destroyed. It simply is, and it exchanges form. And that if you indeed can conceive to some percent higher than the amount that you do right now, you would be able to manipulate the way your domain of cells are. Kind of like you do in scientific experiments. You take this, you add a little bit of that, and suddenly you get foam. And you're like, what? How'd I do that from a gas and a liquid? And now I have solid foam. So when the only way that you can see the true nature to see the true self is simply by having a mirror. I've said this before. When we meet people, we either like them or we don't. We, you might say someone that looks repulsive, immediately you don't like them, right? Done. Or, you know, if you think that a woman with big boobs is attractive, no matter how many amazing women with a A cup or negative A cup or triple A cup come your way, you will never see them attractive because your base self, not the ego you built, but your base self has that baked into it because you chose that, right? That is your moral floor, right? Moral floor, I like to call it like a base. Think of it like a, like the foundation of your own house, Right. And then you're creating this house and you put a lot of junk in it and you're like, fuck that. I'm not going to, you know, I need to gut this down to the studs, down to the foundation and rebuild. But your foundation is your foundation. So the only way I would assume that this is done is through wisdom and knowledge. And with wisdom and knowledge comes self-realization. So it's pretty simple. And you know which fairy tale tells us this the best this one oops it's not on is it here we go let's try again slave in the magic mirror come from the father's space through wind and darkness i summon thee let me see thy face. What wouldst thou know, my queen? Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Famed is thy beauty, majesty. But hold, a lovely maid I see. 
Rags cannot hide her gentle grace. Alas, she is more fair than thee. Alas for her. Reveal her name. Lips red as the rose, hair black as ebony, skin white as snow. Snow white. A mirror. That's like, I've said this before, one of my biggest enemies. See, sometimes if we look in the mirror, we don't like what we see. So we can pretty much see whatever we want, right? Say you like this top and it looks like a curtain, but you look at the top and you're like, that is such an amazing top. You put it on and in the mirror, you will see you looking amazing. But what if you put that top on without having seen the top on the rack next to whatever color it was, it stimulated you to think that it was beautiful. And you walked in front of that mirror with objectiveness. Self-reflection. And I think one of the, I would say, biggest and strongest mirrors that we have is knowledge and the ability to be able to see that, to be able to see ourselves the way the world perceives us and not the way we wish to be perceived. Have you guys ever looked back into your diaries or how many of you went to school and had like these autograph books where you did in triangles, you know, like top triangle, middle triangle, low triangle, and people would sign you wishes when you left middle school or high school. They used to do that stuff when I was a kid. Have you ever read the stuff you actually said? And not just when you were young, but yesterday or the day before and say, damn, did I really say that? Self-reflection is important. And this is why we loathe people that show us who we can be. We start finding people that do things that we wish we could do repulsive. So when you walk to your neighbor and you're like, hey, you know, I think it's kind of BS that all both left and right media are kind of not telling us what's going on. And they look at you and they're like, God, be quiet. Da -da -da. It's because they see and you're saying things they want to say, but they've chosen not to say. And when you demonstrate how amazing it is when you take that leap of faith, but they can't. They're so small-minded, so ego-driven, so into themselves, that they believe that they're special, that they start finding you irritating. And it's not until they realize that they just shit all over their neighbor who's been there, you know, help them water the grass and everything where their neighbor moves and goes to another facility and they blossom. And they only got that house because their neighbor, I don't know, co-signed for their mortgage or helped them build the fence, right? They shit all over them because they were like, now I'm the head honcho here. I'm better. They, they, I'm just trying to show you dynamics that I know all of you have engaged with at one point or another in your life. You don't need a literal mirror. Sometimes people are the mirror. And the best mirror is that one that's filled with knowledge. Because the more knowledge you have, the more solid you are. And the reflection back is true to the image, not a mask like mirror, mirror on the wall. Because normally that mask says what? It's a facade. 
a facade that she would like to see. It shows a queen that was so insane that wanted to be the most beautiful and loved that she saw someone that she perceived as beautiful and loved and had that mirror herself in that masquerade talk back to her. It wasn't magical. That story tells you everything. People get obsessed about being important. People get obsessed about being first, getting a cookie, a title, and tiara. People get obsessed. And then they rationalize. And what have I said? This logic that people have is literally the devil's advocate. That's Lucifer telling you, (laughs) you know, oh, that doesn't seem rational. I mean, how are you going to put gas in the tank? Well, God will provide bullshit. God will not provide anything for you. And then you're like, you know what? Yeah, I've prayed. He's not listened. It's not going to happen. So I just got to do this and forget about it. I'm dead serious. Dead serious on this. If you are a person that has faith, whatever your denomination is, I urge you to test it upon yourself. I urge you to test it upon yourself. Seriously. Oh boy, you will get everything. The minute you leap in faith, it's done blindly. Because if your mirror is simply there for your vanity and it speaks to you exactly what you want to hear in order to make yourself feel better, it's kind of like the way the, 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 the mockingbird media repeats things. They say it over and over again, hoping that at some point you will also see the same thing in the mirror they see. Repeating it until it's true. It's really important. Today, I'm going to show you how we have a really big problem on our hands. And while we all are struggling to ensure that our elections are safe and that our nation stands, a lot of people are dropping out of the race, you guys. A lot of people are dropping out of this race. And it's okay. Because I'm pretty sure God knew that too. Because remember what that video said. When he came down to destroy that city, he only sent one. That's how powerful he is. A lot of people are dropping out of this race. Because it is a very big task. And the people you thought were good... And righteous. And what was it? Principle, principle, principalities, principalities, the ones that follow Lucifer. Huh. You'll see how that works. They interpret things as, well, that's all we could do. So today, Kintaji was sworn in, according to Good Morning America, as the first black Supreme Court justice, I guess, Supreme Court justice. Oops. Sorry, Supreme Court Justice Thomas Clarence is not black. I guess they didn't want to put woman because she doesn't know what a woman is. She couldn't define it. But she was sworn in, right? She was sworn in. And at the same time, I did tell you that because the Supreme Court Justice did this, they're going to pass a law for abortion. They're going to pass red flag laws. They, They already got the red flag laws in. Here come the laws for abortion. Are you still going to wait till elections in 2022 to get your ass off? Oh, let me guess, 2024, after Real ID is implemented, right? We're going to fix it then? That's the problem. You listen to these people saying, well, you know, um, 
we're going to fix it. We're going to get Trump in in 2024. No, the fuck you're not. Because nobody wants to get Trump back in. Don't you get it? They've just been lying to you to milk your money. Milk your money. There are very few people that are working really hard. And some of them, you don't even trust. One in particular, you don't trust. And that's okay. That's okay. You can see that's the problem with man. They don't believe in change. They don't believe in good. They just believe in logic. You know, the devil's advocate. In my life, and I should say in the past six years, I have met so many people so empowered to fix things that ail this nation. And I weep for a lot of them because they believe that they know and kind of like relationships, right? They've simplified them to accept certain involuntary betrayals that they can deal with, but they never crumbled their ego to rebuild it. They just thought they could fix it on top of the broken house. And so many of them, changed. I, I, as a person, have been betrayed by people that are supposed to be good. Because see, power and proximity to people that um, you believe are important inflates you. You suddenly think that you have a new roof on that house of yours, and, and you really don't. It's just that a little bit of rain came. And, you know, what is it for the ladies out there? How many of you know about this thing called bad boy syndrome? You know, where women want to find the bad boys and and make them better, right? Sometimes when you see potential in people, and and I think I had heard President Trump talk about the potential in people. When you see potential in people, you want that amplified. You're like, hey. There is a timeline where this happens. I would love to see you there. And because you're so selfless and so motivated, allow me to help you. And you do. But then when they get to a point where you're like, all right, now fly. Here are your wings, now fly. And instead of flying to continue, they decide to not continue, but just elevate themselves and just float there because they like it. They feel important and they elevate. This is happening for the past three years. These projects that (laughs) were picked out by, by people who were very focused, who were willing to lose everything, just like your president, lose everything. They put their faith and had faith in humanity, had faith in them, and they took it and ran with it. Remember Scaramucci? He was invested with faith. What did he do? He snorted coke, was high all the time, screwed someone in 
you know, some federal building and then flipped on President Trump, but then started to find his way back and then he disappeared. It happens all the time. This July, you're going to see a lot of people show their true colors. Because this mirror is going to be bright, big, and open. So for those of you out there that have hijacked cars, maybe sold some weed 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, maybe you busted up a guy outside a bar and went to jail. And you're not a very good person, right, according to society. I don't care who you were yesterday. I don't care who you were a month ago, five months ago. What we should all be saying is that exactly. If you're standing next to me, I will stand with you. If you stand behind me, I will stand in front of you and protect you. But if you stand against me, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. And that is something all of us should should kind of, you know, repeat to ourselves. Anyone that stands next to me, I'm with. Anyone that stands behind me, I will protect. (laughs) But anyone that stands against me, be careful. Because I'm going to show you just how big of a problem we have. And I'm going to try to explain to you what the purpose of my lawsuit is without telling you directly. So before we do that, let's take a short break. Yep. Tell them. I like this version too. Let's just listen to a more raw rendition. How's that? I think the more raw rendition tells us a lot more. For a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Go tell the long time liar, go and tell the midnight ride. Tell the rambler, the gambler, and the backbiter. Tell them the God's gonna cut him down. Tell them the God's gonna cut him down. Always. Always get cut down. And you know what the best way is? The higher they are, the harder they fall. And remember that, especially during the July 4th holidays. We're going to have a lot of fireworks all week, all week. And for a lot of people, it's going to be on a personal level. 
Because recompense is almost here. Uh, in its completed phase, I guess. Let's just say. It's been coming. In doses. With chances. And assurance. But when evil, when you allow evil to creep in, you can't see. So, conversations that I've had, you know, and conversations that I wish I didn't have pretty much reflect this. And it makes me really sad to see it. Gosh, it makes me weep for people that didn't have to go that way. It's kind of like, you know, when you see that person that's drug addicted, you didn't have to do that. That was your choice. I don't know. I kind of, no, that was your choice. Fourth amendment. It's awesome. Isn't it? It means that people can't search and seizure anything, right? That's, that's what the Fourth Amendment is. Because all of us are so focused on the first and second, which are very important, I might say, but we're forgetting all the others that are being diluted as we, as we speak. Biden is now going to drop the filibuster rules so that they can put an abortion rights law, making it law that babies can be killed. I told you they would do that. And there's a way around it. So the Supreme Court said it's not a constitutional right. And what did they say? I read it to you. Make a law if you really want it. Because this isn't law. And while many are, you know, oh, look, we won. You didn't win shit. They just made the obvious obvious. And they pushed the hand saying, hey, you want to kill babies? You want to be selling baby parts? You want to keep harvesting? You want to keep doing that even though the survival rate of mankind is below that of replenishment? Then you got to make a law. And none of you read the thing we all just cheered and it was great because uh, it was so awesome to at least get the freaking ball rolling. But see, that ball should have been rolling when everybody else, if everybody did what they were supposed to do, pointed out the issues made sure that the people that are in office aren't in office, you know, the decertification thing. And you know, there's so many people out there right now. They're like, well, you know, if Trump can't fix it, forget it. We'll just go with DeSantis or somebody else in 2024. Poke that. He's a losing card. We got this. If he couldn't decertify it and they just stole it, let's just all pretend it didn't happen and let's move along so we can fix it in 2024. That's after Real ID, after they've passed a law to legalize abortion, after, 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 after. That is the talking point of a demon that tells you, oh, no, 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 you can't fix it. It's humanly impossible. And I'm going to show you how big of a task it is. But you know what? It's so simple to fix. I met someone and I'm so frustrated when I see these things. Do you guys remember when we did that show on how we created the United States of America, how all the states got together and they had the convention of states and they discussed on how power is being distributed and how Virginia sat there and said, no, I want more power. I want to have dominion over my area, right? There are people that really want that. And it's like, you can't do that. It's this exactly, this is exactly the problem. You can't move forward if you don't forgive. You can't move forward. You can't have a nice house if you don't, if it's broken and gutted and nasty and it has asbestos and mold. You got to strip that bitch down to the foundation and build a bad up. That is how your ego is too. But that is how your nation is too. You can't get a convention of states while we're already in operation. What the fuck is that? What you need to get that done is a constitutional crisis. 
And the way you can do that is by understanding exactly where your constitutional crisis is. And that would be the Fourth Amendment. I've said this before. It's worth garbage, right? It's worth garbage. While people like to have talking points and saying things, right? Constitutional, let me just express my constitutional crises that I can point out. I had federal and state agencies all up in me. They investigated every single facet of my life. My bank handed over bank records without telling me. People were handing over records without telling me. Boy, boy, boy. And everyone thought that was fun. We don't like her, so it's okay. People were locked up that we didn't like, still don't like, may like, who cares? And they were being held indefinitely. Oh, we don't like that person. So that's okay. They literally broke laws in my state to make sure that I was off the GOP primary ballot. Broke the law, violated the law, rules and regulations of the state. And a Supreme Court even said version of facts. And it was okay because, you know, they don't like me. So it's okay. It can happen. But then when it happens to everybody else, they're outraged, right? Fourth Amendment is dead. And you know, today, my campaign team actually went to, uh, and this is 100% factual, factual. They went to see. So I've made the ballot and we're looking to see the process. You know, when you get into a job, right? Or when you're anticipating on entering in a position, right? Which, <laughs> you know, it's, Let's just leave it at that. And I apologize in advance when I give you the apology months later. But what you do is you look for deficiencies to fix things. Say you're a manager at Walmart, right? And you get hired. What do you look for? Deficiencies. Well, my campaign team has been very, very busy to go see how they verified signatures. And so they went to see, oh, you know, hey, you know, out of hundreds and hundreds of signatures, that county only discounted 25, but we still want to see the 25 they discounted as (laughs) non-genuine. Believe this? A member of my campaign team signed one of the petitions, someone else, right? (laughs) And they disqualified his signature. Are you paying attention? And it wasn't much. It wasn't much. Right. It didn't matter. Like out of hundreds and hundreds of signatures, you're disqualifying 20. I really don't care. Right. It's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. You have to find out. So yesterday I I, I spoke to some members of my campaign team. and I said, you know, here's what you're going to do when you go down there and you ask to see which ones that they said were non-genuine. Ask them who checks it. What's the process? One or two people. And how do they know? When did they get that signature? Was it 10 years ago, 20 years ago? You know, did they take that signature signing on a desk, standing up on a clipboard? You know, how do they know that that's genuine? How do they know? Right? That's the question. (sighs) So, The power of a law is very important in the United States. A law means that the people have approved of that, you know, statement and action that derives from that statement that has been written, right? And, you know, they have given consent to it to have power. Well, what if I told you that your county has access to every fucking signature you've ever signed in your life? From banks to deeds to rental applications to Adobe script things to 
the hospital thing, you know, consent forms, you name it, that your county person actually has access to stuff like that. What would you say to that? Have you given consent that your county has access to all these signatures? And when you put your signature on that rental application or bank account, did you give permission that that image of your signature be pulled together in some system and then used to be checked on other systems that you may not even know are checking your signature? That's a valid question. I'm putting this question out and I'd like to see what um, my listeners have to say about that. WTF, no, hell no. I would say, why would they need access to any of that? That's some BS. I did not consent. No, no, what? No. (laughs) My bank no longer asks for a picture ID to take money out. Sign without prejudice, UCC 1308. No, no, no way. And then there's the, I'm not surprised. So yeah, that's exactly what we found out today. But it is really funny because now the person that was on my campaign that actually signed that, his signature was called non-genuine when he's actually on the campaign team. So then the question is, how did they come to that conclusion? And let's see what signature you have on file. See, that's how they found out. And you're going to say, wait a minute, if I didn't consent and it's not law, how is this legal? How do they have access to all this information? Well, you voluntarily gave it in some disclosure somewhere, right? Or you didn't. And they circumvented it. So before I show you what tool they use to do this, right? Just so that you can see as the Secretary of State, I'd make a great one. I'm looking at deficiencies everywhere, right? And by the way, how do you claim that something's non-genuine when you have them printing their name and their address and signing it? That was really weird. Super weird. But anyway, I digress. How do they do it? Well, there's this cute little video, not all accurate, but I would like to share it with you. It's uh, quite fascinating. A Supreme Court ruling yesterday uh, ruled that it is legal for um, Border Patrol to enter your house without a warrant if you are 100 miles from the border. Without a warrant. So, yeah, we are living in a dictatorship, authoritarian dictatorship. Good luck, bitches. So this Supreme Court ruling from yesterday has pissed a lot of people off. But is this viral clip we just showed, is that actually correct? Is it true that the Border Patrol can enter your home without a warrant anywhere within 100 miles of a U.S. border? There's a lot going on in this case. A lot. So let's start with the facts. If you watch our channel, either here or on TikTok, you know that we try to only give the facts and let you decide what to think about them. So let's start there with the facts. The short version, at least. This case involves a man who turns out to be quite the character. Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion in the case, and he actually lays into this guy whose name is Bull in a pretty snarky way. So Bull owns a bed and breakfast. It's literally called the Smuggler's Inn. It's on the border with Canada. He's got a license plate on his car that also says smuggler. And he helps the inn live up to its name because he helps smuggle people across the border. At the same time, he's a confidential informant for the Border Patrol and reports these people to the Border Patrol. 
complicated guy. Now, Bull's background, all of this isn't actually relevant to the decision in the case, but it's interesting that Justice Thomas brings it up anyways. So Bull tips off Egbert, who's a Border Patrol agent, that a Turkish man is staying at the inn. Egbert saw the Turkish man out and about, and he followed him back to the inn. But while he was there, some kind of altercation took place between Bull and Egbert, and Bull told Egbert to leave. He did not leave and allegedly pushed Bull to the ground. After that, Egbert investigated the Turkish man and found out that he was in the country legally. But again, Justice Thomas points out that he did illegally cross into Canada that evening. So after all of this, Bull reported Egbert to his supervisor. And allegedly, in response to that report, Egbert triggered an IRS audit of Bull. If that sounds like retaliation to you, then you and Bull might have something in common because Bull sued Egbert personally for violating his First Amendment rights by retaliating and trying to trigger an IRS audit. Bull also sued Egbert for violating his Fourth Amendment rights by using excessive force when he got pushed to the ground. Interestingly, the cause of action here isn't actually about a warrantless entry, although that's what all these viral clips and all this stuff in the media is about, but it is still related under the Fourth Amendment, which we'll get to in a second. In the 1971 case of Bivens v. Six Unknown Named Agents, yes, that is the real name, the Supreme Court ruled that people can sue federal officers personally for monetary damages or money if they violate their constitutional rights. Prior to the Bivens case, Congress had already passed a statute that gives citizens the right to sue state and local police or government officials for violating their constitutional rights, but it didn't apply to federal agents. So the Supreme Court basically created this cause of action for federal agents. Returning to the current case, the court essentially rejected all of Bull's claims and held that Bivens lawsuits don't apply to the Border Patrol, that you can't personally sue a Border Patrol agent for violating your constitutional rights. The issue is that Border Patrol deals with sensitive national security concerns, and with those issues at play, it should be Congress and not the courts to actually authorize these kinds of lawsuits. So the question here is, is it actually legal for Border Patrol agents to enter your home anywhere within 100 miles of the border, which is their jurisdiction, without a warrant in violation of your Fourth Amendment rights? It really depends on what legal means to you. Right. We've kind of entered now this weird situation where it's still technically illegal for the Border Patrol to violate the Fourth Amendment. For example, evidence uncovered during a warrantless search would still be uncovered illegally and therefore would be inadmissible in court. But this ruling now says you can't actually personally sue a Border Patrol agent for violating your rights for monetary damages. So in other words, your rights aren't changing, but what you can do if those rights are violated has now changed. Which turns this into a right without a remedy, which might mean to you that it is now effectively legal for a Border Patrol agent to violate your constitutional rights. Because what happens if they do? Now let's just go ahead and preempt what I assume is going to be a lot of questions, and that is, can you still sue the Border Patrol as an agency, even though now you can't sue a specific Border Patrol agent as a person? And the answer is... Everyone's favorite lawyer phrase, it depends. There is a federal law called the Federal Tort Claims Act, which does allow you to sue federal agencies. It's normally invoked when the government or a government actor acts wrongfully or negligently in a way that causes you personal injury, property damage, or something like that. So FTCA claims are more about suffering some sort of tangible harm and less about a constitutional violation. So let's imagine this hypothetical. You live 90 miles away from the border and a border patrol agent decides to come into your home without a warrant and just looks around. Is that legal? No. Can you do anything about it? Not really, unless they cause some kind of property damage, they harm you in a certain way, but if they're just violating your constitutional rights, the law has entered this strange place where there's nothing you can really do about it. At least 
for now. The, the Supreme Court makes it clear in their opinion that they don't want to create a judicial cause of action, meaning a cause of action that's created by a Supreme Court opinion. What they want is for Congress to pass a law. Just like Congress has already done in Section 1983 for state and local police. We're in this weird gray area, right without a remedy area with respect to the Border Patrol until Congress passes a law. Hmm. So it's just for the 100 miles and people were like, oh my gosh, they could come in. But think of it this way. That's not what you're your thoughts should be, right? Border Patrol coming to your house. Obviously, if they find drugs or, you know, I don't know, a stolen lipstick or something, right? They can't technically use it against you and it's not admissible in court, but they've already tainted you. And now with that weird rule of one step, two steps, since they have the authority to come in because you can't sue them, then you have to have some tangible damage and then you have to define tangible damage. I'm just giving you hints. So the, now we're going to look into the 14th Amendment again. We visited this before and it's very important. We watch our favorite um, uh, liberal uh, history teacher <laughs> to remind ourselves of what this 14th Amendment means. is here. I'm Mr. Hughes, and this is Noam Chomsky. In the next few minutes, we're going to take you on the ride of your learning life. Not necessarily, but we are going to try to cover the 14th Amendment. So if you're a United States history student um, in an American government course, middle school, high school, even maybe a college intro course, uh, this lecture is for you. Or if you're just kind of crazy on the Internet, we accept those types of peoples, too. Um, but either way, we're going to chop it up nice and easy and serve it on a bed of learning. So here we go. Get ready for the 14th Amendment. Context. Context is everything. So first you want to group the 14th Amendment with the Reconstruction Amendments. That means it was passed following the Civil War. Um, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. That was passed uh, when Abraham Lincoln was still alive. And then when the Radical Republicans took over the next Congress um, by 1868, they were ready for using the 14th Amendment as a way for the southern states to to re-enter the Union. So therefore, it's kind of a coerced amendment. It's not a naturally flowing amendment. Uh, but nevertheless, it's written into the Constitution. Um, and anybody who wants to complain about that um, should probably be ready to give Manhattan back to the Native Americans. Um, but nevertheless, it is in the Constitution. So um, what does it really say? It really deals with the problem that the Supreme Court dredged up under Dred Scott. Um, in 1857, right before the outbreak of the Civil War, um, the Supreme Court kind of solved once and for all the issue of slavery by determining that all African Americans or Africans that were brought to America are not citizens of the United States. So, you know, years before that, Congress during sectionalism had kind of tried to put Band-Aids on the problem and try to solve it with uh, popular sovereignty and with Missouri Compromise lines. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court, by deciding African-Americans were not citizens, that kind of probably sped up the reasons for the Civil War. But nevertheless, the 14th Amendment is designed to correct that Supreme Court decision. All right. So let's look at the five sections. We're going to come back to Section 1, which is really kind of the... Uh, 
kind of the entree of uh, the 14th Amendment. The second um, part of the second section of the 14th Amendment is meant to kind of correct the three-fifths compromise to make sure that we kind of rephrase that now all citizens, except for Native Americans, are going to be counted towards, you know, full representation. Um, the third section goes to kind of a punitive measure against the former leaders of the Confederate um, America, which is going to prohibit them from serving as kind of leaders in Congress or in, you know, representation in Washington. Um, so they're not going to be allowed to do that unless they get like two thirds of Congress's uh, vote. The fifth section basically says that Congress has the ability to enforce these previous four sections, but it's section one that's the important one. So we're going to read it out loud. Um, we might break it up a little bit, but we're definitely going to put it up on the screen for you. So here we go. 14th Amendment, section one. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state where they reside. Okay, so there you go. Dred Scott is dead, right? So therefore, everybody that was born in the United States, which means all slaves who were born here, um, are automatic citizens. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdictions the equal protection of the laws. So therefore, you have kind of two sections, you know, saying everybody gets equal protection, states give your citizens equal protection, and don't mess with due process. All right, Plessy versus Ferguson. This is the big one, right? Plessy versus Ferguson is 1896, and it's the first chance that the Supreme Court has to basically use the 14th Amendment to protect a black person from their state government. This is, you know, the test case in federalism and civil rights. And the Supreme Court drops the ball. The Supreme Court states that separate could be equal, but separate but equal in a sense, that if the separate car act is saying, you know, blacks on this train and whites on this train, that doesn't mean that they're not equal separate halves. Now, of course, that's just laughable looking at the surface and the reality of the situation in the South. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court, by doing that, is basically saying that Jim Crow is constitutional. So therefore, we're going to have you know, decades and decades of Southern legal segregation discrimination. Um, now, we fast forward to 1954, and this is the other court case you need to know. If you're writing an essay, you start with Plessy and you end with Brown versus Board of Ed. And this, of course, is where the Supreme Court looks at a Kansas law that segregates children by race in schools and says, no, I don't think so. All right, we're going to grow up here and separate is not equal. That separate is inherently unequal. And if you ever research that court case, it's really interesting because they talk about the psychology of race segregation back then and how the children that were being segregated had self-esteem issues. And so did the racist children, too. So it's not good for anybody. But nevertheless, the 14th Amendment, therefore, is now kind of come, you know, full roundhouse kick. And now it's going to be enforced first by Dwight Eisenhower um, in the Little Rock Nine, sending troops down there. And now we've seen basically the 14th Amendment kind of grow 
In the 1960s, you have a series of court cases called the Warren Court Cases, where the Supreme Court is going to selectively incorporate some of those other amendments using the 14th Amendment. So, for instance, in Ohio, um, a court case called Mapp versus Ohio, when the police barge in on Miss Mapp without a warrant looking for a suspect, and uh, Miss Mapp was a, an older lady, and uh, she stuck the fake warrant down her bosom, and the police probably didn't like that you know, too much, so they started digging through her house, and they found pornography. Yes, I said old lady and I said pornography. Um, ew. But nevertheless, that was uh, evidence that was used against her in a trial. So when she goes to the Supreme Court and states, hey, they didn't have a warrant. Basically, she's saying the Fourth Amendment has been broken, but so is the 14th because my state is denying me due process. That's called selective incorporation of the Fourth Amendment. And you have other court cases like Miranda, where they read suspect their rights and where everybody gets a lawyer, Gideon versus Wainwright. And uh, happy day, the 14th Amendment. And of course, the 14th Amendment hasn't stopped been kind of trying to be expanded. And now there's uh, court cases that are going to the Supreme Court dealing with gay marriage and um, gay Americans who are saying that if you have a different set of laws for my people, then you're violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. All right, guys, thanks for watching. Make sure that you subscribe to my channel, right? That would be great because I want to live like an e So in other words, this law that they just passed saying that Border Patrol agents can go and you can't sue them is not equal protection. Therefore... Anybody telling you that you can't do anything is fucking full of it. I just solved the problem and I'm not a legal scholar. There you go. Because then that means anyone that's within, you know, 101 miles in the border has more protections than the person that is within zero to 100 miles of the border. Do you see how that works? This is why the Constitution is so amazing. Because they all protect each other. One with another. It was inspired to be done correctly. So how do you fix something that's so broken? You've heard this before, right? You've heard it before when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty, but rebellion, what does that mean? Do you take arms? No. Do you use your pen? Yes. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to take it down to the studs and someone will be like, well, what does that mean? Well, constitutional crisis. The U.S. Constitution, as we know, is incredible. I mean, I just showed you these law minds and so many other legal scholars that are on your TV and they're so smart. Fear porning you that you have no way out, that this is a gray area. But look, that high school teacher just gave you the answer right there. <laughs> it's right there. It's like people don't take the 40,000 foot view to see the whole thing and put the puzzle pieces together. When this constitution was written, it was written in the most impeccable fashion. So in order to take back our nation, we have to create a constitutional crisis. And a constitutional crisis is uh, pretty much taking it down to the studs. It means that the Constitution has no answer for this and there's no law that can foresee this. So since it's not happening, what do we do? Uh, Webster Dictionary says it's a emotionally significant event, a radical change of a status person's life, like a midlife crisis is a constitutional crisis. That's what a crisis is, I guess, right? Um, a turning point for better or worse in an acute disease or fever, right? An unstable, crucial time or state of affairs in which a decisive change is impending, especially one with distinct possibility of highly undesirable outcome, a financial crisis, nature's energy crisis.
constitutional crisis. There's about four of them. One is that the Constitution's meaning is in question. So here's where you have the Fourth Amendment, and they're like, well, what does that mean? And they're not really violating your rights because you can't really sue them, and you can't sue the agency, and you kind of have, but you have to have tangible evidence, and there's got to be this. And then you could talk about quartering of soldiers being in your house, and then it's like, well, what did it mean? Did it foresee this? This is where people are philosophizing and uh, you know, changing what the Constitution means. And so the problem that we have is like the Great Depression, the Civil War, those were constitutional crises. In the Civil War, the fight rested on a bunch of unsettled um, constitutional questions like about slavery, about the federal government's ability to control slavery or to control people. You know, it was a it was a subject that the Constitution was silent on and that people fought for. When it came to the Great Depression, it was a constitutional crisis that people couldn't really see. You know, uh, Roosevelt was, was was elected president in 1932. Uh, you know, they wanted him to declare martial law to address the economic situation. Uh, people were starving. People were homeless. They wanted to give him power. But then interpretations of the Constitution offered very limited views on how the federal government could intervene in the economy. And they were, you know, limits that FDR, you know, wasn't inclined to heed. Uh, the Supreme Court overturned many of the New Deal's, it wasn't green then, it was just a New Deal, provisions. And in 1937, FDR actually threatened to change the makeup of the court. He wanted to pack the court to have more people that would vote his way. I mean, you hear Merrick Garland kind of tossing the idea around. So this isn't something new. This is what they're trying to avoid. This is why, oh man, my heart hurts so bad. A lot of people didn't have to do this. Another constitutional crisis is when the Constitution tells us what to do, but it's not politically feasible. Kind of like, Tori, we can't, we can't decertify all those elections from then. That would be chaos. In other words, it's not politically feasible. Fuck that. See, the category of constitutional crises um, happen when presidential elections have contested or confusing results, right? Just like the Gore-Bush thing, right? And there were irregularities and irregularities, that's what they call them, not fraud. (laughs) Fraud videates everything, but you know, whatever. Did you know that the House of Representatives actually selected a president once? Once they actually selected one themselves? They selected it. It was in 1824. And a lot of people back then said that was corrupt. They got so much backlash for appointing Adams. I'm very careful on what I say. Constitutional crisis. I found this really cute video. Believe it or not, it has less than 4,000 views on a channel that has over 300,000 subscribers. Huh. And it's been there for years. I'd like you guys to take a look at this video. It's really eye-opening. The term constitutional crisis gets thrown around a lot. You called it a constitutional crisis. Our nation faces a constitutional crisis. But not always in the right way. 
So it's possible to use it so often and to cry wolf so often that, that people don't believe it when there may actually be a crisis. Obviously, the Constitution sets out the rules for U.S. democracy. It guides every decision, vote, and law. And when it's working properly, the federal government should essentially look like this. But constitutional crises happen when the Constitution isn't performing its central functions. Basically, when the system itself seems to be broken in some fundamental way and can't handle the crisis. Such that... Um uh, the Constitution is not accomplishing the goals it's supposed to accomplish of being of allowing us to make political decisions um, and implement them. Princeton professor Keith Whittington is an expert on all this. Constitutional crises can be broken down into two main categories, crises of constitutional operation and of constitutional fidelity. An operational crisis means there's an issue with the Constitution itself. And that can happen either because uh, the Constitution is unclear, um, it could be because the constitutional rules actually um, uh, conflict with one another, um, such we have these sort of irresolvable conflicts, even though everybody's behaving in the way that is constitutionally allowed. According to Whittington, there are two different types of operational crises formal and practical. A formal crisis is when everyone is following the rules, but there is so much disagreement on the end result that the government can't move forward. A practical operational crisis happens when some type of external pressure requires action, but the current constitutional system won't allow us to do anything. A fidelity crisis is when the constitution requires something and we're just not willing to comply with it. So from our perspective, that rule um, is just that that is that we all agree is actually is a real rule in the Constitution, um, and yet we also come to the conclusion we're just not willing to obey it. Basically, an operational crisis is about the Constitution itself, while fidelity is about how the government interacts with the Constitution. But remember, just because something is unprecedented doesn't mean it's a constitutional crisis. Doesn't mean it is. See, they don't want that because when there's a constitutional crisis, you know what happens, right? That's when the government gets an overhaul. And so at every corner, every judge doesn't want to be responsible for a constitutional crisis. Many will tell you, oh, that's a constitutional crisis. That one is. No, no, no. Most things that come up to the Supreme Court are very well argued down and can be taken care of. But Biden's calling for filibuster rules to change. A rule is not a law. Thank you. <laughs> Can't change rules without laws that allow you to. So if they have a law that allows them to change the rules, we're fucked, right? But then what happens when something happens that no one could anticipate to see? Well, I could tell you that the Supreme Court reads the Constitution very well. And SCOTUSgate is about to, to peak. Peak. So how would you know what a constitutional crisis is? Would you know if you were in one? That's a good question. Is a constitutional crisis. Would you know it if, if we, we were, were in, in one? To understand if we are in one today, we have to look back at our history. But first, a definition. Constitutional crisis. Noun. A problem or conflict in the function of a government that the political constitution or other fundamental governing law is perceived to be unable to resolve. 
let's look back at Crisis 1, the Nullification Crisis, 1828-1833. South Carolina declares national tariffs would be null and void, forcing a constitutional showdown between state and federal governments. President Andrew Jackson is none too happy. Congress is uh, concerned about um, the economy and the tariffs are uh, perceived to help manufacturing in the North and in the West. Uh, and Southerners, though, uh, perceive the tariffs as being uh, economically oppressive. Just as the 1828 election is about to occur, Congress passes another tariff law, jacking up the standard rate to 50%. Think about that. Imagine if everything you purchased that was manufactured or grown in a foreign country had a 50% tax on it. At this point, uh, South Carolina had had enough. In the fall of that year, they passed an ordinance of nullification. They declared that the uh, tariff was no law, that it was not binding on the state of South Carolina, and it wasn't going to be enforced. While that was going on, um, President Jackson uh, issued what's called the nullification proclamation. He said, you've been misled by your political leaders. You cannot prevent enforcement of a federal law in South Carolina. Nullification is treason, and I have sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States. He also asked Congress to pass what came to be called a force bill. Now, the force bill would empower the president to use the army to enforce the law. People actually thought that Jackson would go attack South Carolina, that there would be a civil war in the United States. Fortunately, Henry Clay steps into the scene, you know, the, the great compromiser. Henry Clay negotiates a compromise that everybody agrees to. Ultimately, it gives South Carolina and the southern states some tariff relief over the next 10 years. It's controversial because uh, by now we've had several efforts to assert um, a kind of radical states' rights position. Um, the radical states' rights position is actually at odds with um, uh, much of what we see in the Constitution. Does the federal government have primacy or do the states have primacy? The political problem was dealt with, but the fundamental issue of whether or not the federal government is going to have absolute control or whether the states still have a part to play, that had not been resolved. And really today hasn't been resolved at this point either. And then we have crisis number two, the death of William Henry Harrison, April 4th, 1841. In this case, shortly after inauguration, William Henry Harrison dies in office. Should his vice president finish out his term? Should a special election be called? The Constitution is less than helpful. So what happens? Uh, Tyler immediately starts to behave like he's a lawfully elected president. And he takes the presidential oath of office. And he just starts running the country as if there's no doubt about this. And he's able to sort of create a kind of precedent that we followed ever since. Tyler's detractors uh, only uh, considered himself an acting president, um, which meant that he wasn't considered popularly elected as far as uh, his uh, detractors were concerned. It, it would have also meant that they should have been uh, trying to uh, immediately schedule an election uh, to fill the, the presidency as soon as possible. Tyler believed that the moment he took the uh, Oval Office, he was entitled to finish out uh, Harrison's term. Ultimately, there's too much of a, a temptation to basically just seize power, and whoever has the political clout at the moment is going to be able to do that. And we see this all the time. 
usually it's through usage, through what James Madison called liquidation of constitutional provisions that their meanings are established. I believe that any time that there is any gray area, instead of simply setting a precedent, simply letting those in power decide what their powers are going to be, that we should turn to the amendment process. We passed the 25th Amendment uh, after uh, JFK's assassination. By then, we also had a kind of set of lingering concerns. For example, what if the president becomes uh, mentally ill? A number of these concerns um, started to become raised. And so the 25th Amendment was enacted to clarify that the vice president would always be the one to assume power if the president either dies or is somehow incapacitated. And finally, crisis three, the 1876 presidential election, November 7th, 1876. Voting irregularities forced Congress to appoint a special panel to determine the election results. Seven Republicans, seven Democrats, and a justice. What could go wrong? It was a highly contentious election. Tilden was accused of uh, all sorts of things, and they called him corrupt. They accused him of being riddled with syphilis. They called him a drunk. There were also accusations of voter intimidation. Armed white citizens wanted to sort of push the Republicans out of those remaining southern states. We're in the midst of Reconstruction. Many states in the South are still effectively under martial law. They're being run by the by the U.S. military. So there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of gray in, in all of this. Instead of allowing each state to determine the results of its own election, it got thrown to this special panel. And what Congress did was to appoint a 15 person commission to try to resolve all of these issues and decide who would be the next president of the United States. And then there was going to be this last person, this 15th person that at least a number of congressmen hoped would be a somewhat more neutral figure. That person ended up becoming Supreme Court Justice Joseph Bradley. When finally the commission took its vote, a uh, Supreme Court justice who had been thought to be neutral but actually wasn't uh, voted Republican, and that meant that Hayes ended up getting to, to become the president. Eventually, a compromise is hammered out. And this is what um, ends up resolving the crisis, is that um, a number of promises are made uh, to Im uh, help improve the economy of the South. This will all happen if the Democrats accept that the contested votes will all go to Hayes. There's an understanding as part of this deal that the federal government will withdraw what's left of the troops from places like Louisiana. The standard version of the outcome in 1876 has been that there was a trade between northern and southern whites. In reality, this is not what happened. Grant had already removed significant military assets from the South, so it actually was not a product of the Commission's work that Reconstruction was brought to a final end. Conclusion. Historical crises, lingering effects. If we're going to have rule of law, then we have to have a firm, concrete foundation, a constitutional foundation that does not shift and it does not move. In all of these crises, we start to see what happens when we don't adhere to that foundation. People have made good faith arguments in recent years that in various scenarios, we were in constitutional crises. I think 
depending how one understands ongoing events in 2019, it's arguable that we are in more than one kind of constitutional crisis. I don't think that we're living in the most divisive time in history. I think we have always had divisive times. The more you try to centralize, the more that divisiveness is going to be exacerbated. Uh, when we can decentralize, it's easier to get along and live together. Anyone who uh, watches uh, uh, this documentary or thinks hard about these episodes uh, will hopefully come away with the sense that uh, constitutional principles aren't uh, self-executing. Uh, they're not self-evident, even though we like saying that they are. Um, instead, they are uh, enforced through struggle, the willingness of someone to kind of lay down, um, uh, to draw a line, uh, to fight for a principle. But we can only know the content of a principle uh, through this struggle and how people react to it afterward. Exactly that case, the struggle and how they react to it. And then you have to think, like you said, people have to draw the line on principle. I've been found in my own crises the past six to eight weeks. I work with an army of legal minds and the one legal mind that I felt had strong principle. No, no, no. See, they all cop out at some point. They all cop out at some time and they show their true colors because you are forged through fire. It is through fire that you are forged and only the best come out like shiny glowing swords. You get thrown into the den like Daniel did. Do you come out or do you just become a lion too? And see, this is how it works. This is why there's been a delay. No one wants to do this. No one really wants to draw the line unless, you know, they're guaranteed to get a medal, a tiara. You know, they don't want to get beat up. They want to be king. And this is in general. This is going around the nation. This happens. You know, one person that doesn't really care how much mud you throw them is Mike Lindell. This guy just keeps going and going. I freaking love him. And Patrick Byrne does too. He keeps going and going and going. There's a lot of people that just keep going and going and going. Other people that go and then they like change direction. Right? And you're like, what happened? What happened is, is that they're bound to this reality construct. They're bound to it. And they're like, well, you know, it's not making me money, man. So, you know, Patrick Byrne has the right to keep fighting because he has his own money. He doesn't care. Mike Lindell has his own money. He doesn't care. <laughs> Yeah, I'm fighting. I don't have any money. I don't care. See, that's the thing. You have to say, I don't care and I will fight on principle. They have fought Mike Lindell like crazy. Where is he right now? He's still laughing. He still has his private jets. They've banned him everywhere. And he went all in knowing that everything he built after overcoming drugs, overcoming addiction, everything he built, they have tried to destroy him when they send things to destroy you and they make you even stronger, those are the people that you should actually fear. Hmm? And what does he do? He sells pillows and slippers and sheets and, 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 right? 
and Patrick Byrne. They have maimed this guy because he was all part of these associations, but he keeps fighting. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. You know, I should ask, you know, Lindell to give me a code so we can buy his pillows. I'm going to actually email them uh, and tell them, hey, just give me a code. We need to like buy him more pillows because the more I see him, the more I'm like, oh, I wish I had your, you know, uh, foundations. I mean, I still have the same energy. I think I have more big dick energy than that because I really don't care because, see, I don't have anything to lose. I've already lost everything. And I think that goes back to shedding everything and just having faith that he'll take care of you. You know, the get rid of your riches and everything and you'll be fine. Gosh, I am. And all of us are, believe it or not. We just have to have faith. So a constitutional crisis. Well, constitutional crisis is exactly what we need, but who's going to identify that and what is it? And you've got to think, what is it that will draw the line? Tori, we can't do that. That would be complete chaos. Yeah, watch me do it. I waited, I waited, I waited and watch me do it. And only those that have been forged through fire will be the ones drawing their swords because that's the way it happens. That is how it happens. You don't give a shit. You're going to keep talking. You're going to, oh, look at you posing. That's great. You can stay there. Let's just keep going. That's what we need to do. You watch how that happens. Now, going back to the signatures, let me tell you how they do this. Let me tell you how they circumvent the law and take your signatures from everything and compare it at your county level and you don't even know. And then, well, you'll have to wait for my filing next week to see exactly who runs all of this. Because union contracts covering local government agencies may be in effect for up to three years or longer as while the parties are negotiating a new agreement after a contract term expires, Issues may arise requiring the agency and the union to discuss and agree on certain matters while the contract remains in effect. Such mutual agreements are permissible and usually done through a Memorandum of Understanding. A Memorandum of Understanding, known as an MOU, is a formal signed agreement that serves as an amendment to the collective bargaining agreement. The MOU usually addresses a significant issue that emerged during the term of the agreement, and it represents the mutual understanding between the parties on that issue. Memorandums of Understanding are also known as MOAs, or Memorandums of Agreement, a Letter of Understanding, LOU, or a Letter of Agreement, LOA. Rather than redraft an existing union contract, an employer and a union will typically draft a Memorandum of Understanding to cover the issue. The MOU can then be attached to the union contract if it affects a provision of the agreement. In the alternative, it can serve as a separate agreement itself. A memorandum of understanding should be signed and dated by the agency and union and should be treated as a binding agreement. In addition to midterm agreements, negotiations may result in the resolution of an issue that does not have a broad application or is not anticipated to be needed in the future. This type of one-time resolution often is documented in a memorandum of understanding rather than placed in the union contract, which is generally drafted for continued ongoing operations. All right, so let's take a trip back in time to an article that I wrote. I want to show you something. This is how they circumvent the law. See, a law is a law. A memorandum of understanding is an agreement between two agencies that's not really legal and doesn't have to be legal. But as you can see from this article that I had published in uh, Big League Politics, right? I want to direct you to what it says here because it's really important. 
Local, state, and federal and tribal law enforcement agencies can be authorized to submit face recognition searches for law enforcement purposes. From the beginning of the pilot in December of 2011 to December 2015, the number of search requests by states ranged from 20 by one state to over 14,000 in another. Big League Politics, me, right, has exclusively obtained documents presented below showing that Comey's FBI was storing facial recognition and DMV records of private citizens and that at Comey's assistant director, David Cuthbertson, lied about it on television just four days after signing the agreement. So he was on a 60 Minutes. I think the video is here. Is this it? No, that's that segment. <laughs> oh, darn it. Where is it? There's a video where it shows Cuthbertson. We're, uh, you're going to hear a lot about that name in my suit. So, um, uh, so basically, on May 15, 2013, Cuthbertson entered an agreement with the North Dakota Attorney General's office. The official in that office who signed off on the deal, Dallas Carlson, who is now the head of the BCI, is now President Trump's nominee to be U.S. Marshal. This agreement was a memorandum of understanding between the two agencies that the Attorney General would be providing all DMV photos and other personal identifying information to the FBI to store and house on their database. Other state attorneys general refused to enter the agreement with Vermont's Attorney General in December of 2017 calling the program illegal. Here's the signatures, right? He signed it May 15th. For the purpose of this MOU, personally identifiable information defined as information which can be used to distinguish, trace an individual's identity, including personal information, which is linked or linkable to a specific individual. Examples of PII are name, social security number, driver identification number, telephone number, date of birth, place of birth, citizenship, mother's name, and photograph or computerized images, fingerprints, and other biometrics. So... There was an uproar in early 2013 when a secret unit created by President Obama in 2010 called the High Value Intelligence Group, HVIG, became public knowledge. According to insiders, the HVIG members were and directors included Robert Mueller, James Comey, and Christopher Ray, H.R. McMaster, Rod Rosenstein, Andrew McCabe, David Cutherson, and more FBI officials and intel components that reported directly to the president. Now, I'll tell you what. There was uh, some heavy-duty firing of someone when they actually accidentally in public mentioned that that unit existed because there was no charter for it. So I want you guys to understand that memorandums of understanding are completely illegal, completely illegal, because they're not laws and they're just agencies agreeing to swap information and the currency or what the one party gets to another is just access to data, which is actually currency, therefore, again, illegal selling, buying your information, utilizing it for whatever. So again, again, how the fuck does your county have access all to this? Well, they have a memorandum of understanding and it's way better than any legal agreement, right? Because a legal agreement is bound by law. Memorandum of Understanding is not. And that, well, that's a big problem. Welcome to this month's Approachable Lawyer Newsletter. We've got a big newsletter for you this month, so let me just crack straight into it. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you're about to do a business deal and in your heart of hearts, you know that you should really get that deal documented in writing to make sure the other person doesn't renege and you don't lose loads of money on the deal? But you're scared of doing that for two reasons. One, you don't want to put on, put on the table a 20-page legal document full of legal jargon, which you think is going to frighten the other person off. And secondly, you probably don't want to go and get a lawyer to draft a 20-page document because you know it's going to cost you a lot of money. 
So what do you do? Well, one answer for you may be to get a memorandum of understanding. Let me explain what that is. Basically, a memorandum of understanding is like the bare bones of your eventual um, legal agreement. It's going to be a fraction of the size. It's going to be in plain English, and it's probably not going to frighten the other person off. Now, what I want to emphasize about the memorandum of understanding is it is a binding legal document. So the other party can't renege. You can still sue on it and all those kind of things. But of course, it costs less and it's less likely to frighten the other person. And it contains a clause which says or which anticipates that you will both enter into a proper full legal agreement at some later stage. Now, effectively, what that does is it buys you some time to see whether that um, deal or whether that relationship is going to work before you actually invest the time and get a proper or time and money and get a proper legal agreement drawn up. So if you think you might need a memorandum of understanding, I suggest that you have a read of this month's article. You'll find the link to it in the newsletter or in the box below. And for secret library and hotline members, I'll also be putting a template memorandum of understanding in the secret library over the coming month. Now, the other important piece of news I have for you this month is in relation to the 90-day trial period. Now, just to recap here, last uh, year, the national government introduced legislation which said that for businesses that employ 19 or fewer employees, you can have a 90-day trial period clause in your employment agreement, which meant that if you got rid of an employee within that 90 days, you would not get sued for a personal grievance. That meant that you don't have to worry about genuine reason or process. You could just go ahead and give them notice and get rid of them. Now, that's absolutely fantastic. However, a decision of the Employment Court this month has said that if you want to rely on a 90-day trial period clause, not only must you have that clause in your employment agreement, but also you must make sure that your employee signs that employment agreement before they start work for you. That means even if they've um, done, say, a day's work for you and then sign the agreement, that trial period clause will be null and void and you won't be able to rely on it. Now, of course, it's always been good practice to make sure that your employees sign their agreements before they start work. But if you ever needed a reason to make sure that happens, then this is it. Because if you um, don't do it and you proceed to dismiss someone under the trial period only for it to be null and void, you could end up getting sued for a personal grievance. And we don't want that. The next thing I want to recommend to business owners is that you go out and buy and read, if you haven't done so already, Michael Gerber's E-Myth. Now, I've read that book, and I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. And what it teaches is that you must systemize and document your business in order to make it successful. It will increase your profits, but more than anything else, it will allow you to take a step back from your business so you're not running around like a headless chicken and spending all the hours that God sends at the office or in your place of work. But the problem for most business owners is how do you actually go about documenting and systemizing your business? Well, I may have the answer for you. On the 27th of October, um, I'll be speaking at a seminar called Simplify to Amplify. And that seminar is all about how you go about systemizing and documenting your business. So it's on the 27th of October. It's being held at North Harbour Stadium in Auckland. And the investment is just $149 plus GST. 
So if you are one of those business owners who know you know that you need to get around and do this, I strongly recommend that you come to this seminar. So to reserve your place, just simply drop me an email, michael at approachablelawyer.com. Or even if you think you might be interested in coming but haven't quite made up uh, your mind yet, then also drop me an email because I can send He's you a so file cool. with a little bit more information about the speakers and what the uh, is all about. So again, just drop me an email at Michael. He's really at good at advertising. The seminar only lasts, only lasts for the duration. duration of the morning, so it won't take up much of your time, such as uh, Bob Proctor, Jack Canfield, lots of people who are like-minded individuals like yourself, your peers, as well setting the week, Sutherland, who's an ex-Olympic um, coach and also a business coach. coach. Damn it, damn it. Oh, I pulled the wrong video. It doesn't matter. Regardless, the memorandum of understanding is uh, an agreement between two parties to do things. Now I'm going to tell you this. The people that have created the program where your county has access to all this personal information of yours, like signatures wherever and whenever you put it, that you have not consented to directly. I urge all of you, send an email to your county and ask them, how do you verify the signature on a petition? Advise me. Do you just use the one from 20 years ago or 10 years ago or the one that I just signed this year? Ask them. Then you'll find out who's really rigging your elections. Then you'll find out exactly who is responsible for it. What? Yes, that's exactly it. Right now, more than any time ever in our history as a nation, I guess back then they weren't in civilized rebellions. We need God more than anything. And I can't wait to share with you, um, you know, oh, the love that is going to come out of this. I, I, I tell you, just have faith. I know it sounds so sad. I remember when I was going through the worst phase of my life, day one. All people would tell me is, I'll pray, just pray. And I was thinking, loser, what do you mean pray? My life has been destroyed. I have been betrayed by the closest thing. My life did not even exist. <laughs> and I thought that was the only solid thing I had. What do you mean pray? Oh, boy, were they right. Boy, were they right. And it's a good thing I caught up on that. It's a good thing I allow the involuntary and voluntary destruction of my ego at the same time. I guess that is how you move forward <laughs> because he will build you up. He will give you all the tools you need, all the pens, papers, money, shelter, food. If you can actually fathom that he is definitely in control and that he indeed can see everything here Everything, things you can't see in here, he can't. That's the thing. No, oh, Texas photographer, good one. Ego is not your amigo, especially when our nation is in this position. Do not tell anyone that can't happen and do not say that. You can speak things into reality. I mean, I was talking about bears, right? So now let me bring up something else. I noticed something in the past three months. Something really odd. I fly a lot for various reasons. And so I noticed that when I get off the plane, I can't breathe. 
Now, at first, you know, it would happen periodically. I'd be like, maybe, you know, I ate too many M&Ms because, you know, I was eating like fucking anything so that I didn't have to wear that mask. And I thought to myself, you know, it could be because I'm sick and, you know, my sickness has expanded and maybe that's the reason. And then I'm like, well, I went to school and I know that in order for me to be feeling the way I feel, I have to exert myself, you know, I'm fat, I'm round, right? So if I exert myself too much, I should be out of breath. Like if I walk too much or if I walk too fast. Now, the majority of the time when I'd get off the plane, it's usually me rushing to the other side of the planet to catch the next flight because, you know, that makes sense. You give someone 30 minutes to get, you know, (laughs) to another terminal. But what I noticed was when I get off the plane, literally when I'm at the door, I suddenly have no breath. I'm gasping for air and I'm not understanding it. And it's not like, oh, I walked a little bit and I'm like, holy crap, I'm like huffing and puffing. Like I'm, I feel like I'm choking. I can't breathe in. I can't breathe out. And I don't understand why that's happening. And so I started to pay attention, right? In experiments, what you do is you um, try to repeat the situation. So whenever I consciously can and I have time, right? Except for that time, I don't think I've said this before. <laughs> where I had way too many Delta H gummies and I literally was leaning. Like I was like, there's no way I'm making my gate. And then even if I had two hours to get there, which I did, I I actually thought I was not going to get to my next flight. That was like the biggest mistake ever. Never going to happen. Like it was really bad. But anyway, but I pay attention. So if I have time, so I now with my travel, I try to book myself at least an hour and a half distance and I pay attention. So what I noticed was recently, and I've repeated this, hence why I'm talking about it now, is that um, I noticed that the problem that I get is right when I'm exiting the plane, like before I, like the little ramp, when I take that first breath of air, I'm done. And I'm like huffing and puffing. And so then I have to trot over to the closest bathroom because you can see that I'm labored breathing and I don't want someone to think it's COVID, right? Or that I'm sick. And I'll rush to the nearest bathroom and, you know, jump up on the counter and just sit for a second. And I need at least 15 to 20 minutes and then I'm fine. And then I'll walk the mile and not be out of breath. But it takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to regulate. And what I noticed is, is that I feel that my interpleural cavity is stuck. It won't do it. Now, a lot of people say, well, you're a smoker too. And it's like, look, I don't have COPD. Um, when I exert myself, like working out, obviously I'm going to be short of breath because I'm fat and maybe because I smoke, but when I swim, I don't. So I don't think the smoking really bothers me, but I noticed that, um, it is literally a problem when they open the door. And I'm I'm wondering if the pilot issue has something to do with that. Now, I was kind of looking around and and Googling around, trying to figure out if anybody else has reported this and what could be the cause. And now they talk about altitude sickness that causes shortness of breath and causing that issue with the lungs. But planes are supposed to be flying at a certain altitude. And I'm thinking, are the planes flying at a different altitude Is there something with the cabin pressurization? You know, what is it? 
because the minute I'm at the door, like I'm fine walking in the plane to the door. The minute I get to the door and I'm going over that little bridge to get into that, you know, thing where you exit into the airport, I'm done. So there's got to be something going on that is severely affecting me and I'm not understanding what it is. And it's not on every single flight. So I know that I don't have COPD. I, you know, I've got other stuff, but I don't have anything like that that hinders my breathing except for being fat. Okay. But it's not, I'm not understanding it. And then I thought to myself after observing this, uh, my third round of experiments was this week. I noticed, you know, I have an issue with my Astuhian tubes. They're actually quite short. If you guys remember back in 2019, when I went to Harris graduation from the U.S. Army, uh, my eardrums blew, right? And they just blew and they were bleeding. My ears were bleeding and everything, right? And so I tried to pay attention to the pressure. So what I did was I tried to induce negative pressure or cause, you know, how your ears hurt, right? And I... um sat there and induced the non, non-equalizer. You know how they say open your mouth, chew gum, and this way your ears won't pop. So I tried to promote my ears popping or hurting, and I didn't have an effect. So then I thought, all right, so it's not the air pressure. So there's got to be something else. Now, I have noticed lately that while I'm sitting in the chair, there'll be white things that are falling from the top, or like a mist, a mist has actually hit my hand, uh, which could be part of whatever, the air conditioning, but there's something going on. So um, it's not the pressure because I've tried to induce that. Could it be the altitude or could it be something that they're putting in the air because of COVID? I don't know, but I thought I would put it out because I have a broad enough audience that maybe somebody else has noticed the same thing. Maybe someone else has noticed that for some reason, they aren't able to breathe properly after they exit the plane. Obviously, if you're not fat like me, maybe it just lasts a few minutes. For me, it it takes me a good 15, 20 minutes. I mean, when I um, landed in Kentucky yesterday, you know, I really sat down for 15 minutes. And I didn't move and I took deep breaths and I tried to regulate and, you know, and I looked at my, um, my heart rate thing, my heart rate wasn't too elevated or anything when I was at rest, but my respiration was really labored and I didn't understand. And it only happens at that point. After that, I'm running around the airport going wherever and it's fine. So I thought I would bring that up coupled with the fact that we have pilots short of staff. I know all of us are bringing it down to COVID vaccines, but there's got to be something going on. And so, uh, you know, I've been writing these notes and yesterday I was bantering that after the speech with someone and they were like, maybe you should talk about it. And so hence I'm talking about it. There's got to be something going on. And I'm more inclined to say that it has to be with the altitude, which makes me concerned because I did take an altometer with me. Now I took a digital one, which could be skewed and it could be mimicking whatever the pressurized environment is. Maybe it doesn't work like that. Maybe it needs certain things. I don't have like a proper one, (laughs) 
but I think it could be something about um, the actual altitude. So I don't know, or maybe they're spraying something that I'm sensitive to. Maybe some other people are. I don't know. But I thought I'd put it out there. And if you hear anything about it, please let me know. Let me know so that way we can figure that out, I guess. On another, um, I guess, public question. Have you guys checked to see your counties and your state and see how long they kept on to the video recordings of the mail drop ballots? Are those supposed to be part of the 22-month hold? I don't know. I'm looking into that, but it turns out in Ohio, after 45 days, they deleted the video footage of the drop boxes. I'd like for all of you to kind of um, take a look at that. The video footage for the mail-in ballot drop boxes. How long do they have to hold on to that video footage? Isn't it supposed to be part of the 22 months it's, it's pertaining to elections? And if a county actually deleted it, what do we do? I mean, that sounds like a filing. Because if it's part of the electoral process, any data pertaining to the elections should be held for 22 months. Why did they delete that data? In the state of Ohio, in one county, they deleted it after 45 days. So another thing is, I just saw someone saying that their secretary of state made an election rule saying they only have to keep it for 60 days. Please keep in mind, rules are not laws. Please pay attention to the rule and see where they derive the authority from what law to make that rule. Because if that has been done, you can actually impeach your secretary of state. Administrative rules are not laws. And unfortunately, people actually consider administrative rules to be laws when they're not. But I digress. Keep that in mind. We'll talk about that more next week. Tomorrow should be fun. I'm thinking we should do a very lighthearted welcome July episode. It's going to be the 4th of July. We're going to be seeing some fireworks for the whole week. So let's prepare. God bless everyone. Oops, that was the wrong video. That was the one for Tartaria. Oops, that was like an unintentional mistake. I just lied. So let's just finish it off with a nice song. How's that? We need nice music to make this go well, right? So let's see. What kind of music are you feeling today, the end of June? Does it feel like June? Does it feel like it's July? It's already the seventh month of this year. Does it really feel like it happened? What are you feeling? What are you guys feeling? What are you guys feeling? I know what you're feeling. Let me show you what you're feeling. <laughs> Here we go. Is this a competition? It's a competition, right? It's a competition. Please do it.